Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tzarech Iyun Podcast brought to you by Yeshiva Doraita. My name is David Silverstein. Today, I have the honor of welcoming back to the podcast Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Doraita, Rabbini Friedman. Rabbini, thank you so much for coming back on the Tzarech Iyun Podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to another awesome conversation with you. Okay, great. So we've been spending a pretty significant amount of time on the Tzarech Iyun Podcast in the aftermath of the horrors of October 7th. Uh, talking about uh, this war from sort of all different angles. We've talked about it from the perspective of Torah sources. We've talked about it from the perspective of civic discourse, all different themes related to the question of October 7th. But I realized recently that there's one theme that we haven't really addressed sufficiently, and that is sort of the personal toll of war on uh, the average Israeli. Provide a little bit of context for this for this topic. Um, I was walking in Mamilla Mall, to yeshiva one day about, I don't know, about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, and I bumped into your wife, Dorit, and I hadn't seen her in a while. And uh, she said that she was going to see your son, Yair, in, who she hadn't seen for about six weeks because uh, he was in Aza. And um, I was talking to her in the context of our conversation. She had a line to me, which really spoke to me. We we're talking about the challenges of, you know, having a child in Gaza. I obviously don't have any children in Gaza, but she was describing to me what it's like to be a mom. And then she said to me, kisafta. We were talking in English, but she had this one great line of Hebrew, Shani Miguyese Kisafta, which translates as I've been I've been drafted, so to speak, as a grandmother, right? Because not right. only was your son in the war, but also your son-in-law, right? It was also uh, in Asa. And it made me really appreciate that, you know, unfortunately, there isn't enough attention given to um the human toll, right? The average the impact that this war has on the average family. And you're not only a father of somebody and a father-in-law of somebody who's current, who has been in Oslo for an extended period of time, you yourself are also a former company commander. So you know what it's like to be on the other side, to have parents worrying, be parents anxious about how their son is doing. So I thought you know, we would talk for um, this episode really about some personal angles, some personal anecdotes, some personal reflections about what it's like for you, what it's been like for you uh, during this uh, very difficult period. Maybe we could just begin, if you could describe a little bit, um, your situation, um, you know, how many children do you have? How many extended family members do you have in Gaza in the north? And sort of how has that been just sort of day in and day out, knowing, um, you know, where children are, you know, when you're going to bed that night? Okay, so um, I, I guess the, the place to start, which is always a good question, is October 7th. So we have, uh, we live in Efrat, right, Dorit and I. Uh, we have four children. Uh, Baruch Hashem, uh, literally a few weeks, I mean, Marsh, during Aseris Mechuvah, the, the period in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, um, Adi, our daughter, got married. That's the fourth wedding of our four children. We did a mazinka. We were, so we were flying. And um, on the night of Simchas Torah, you know, obviously I was in Yeshiva Araita. We take over the Rova. We have Akafot. And I walked up into, you know, sort of Baka in that area where, where, um, we had dinner with our son who got married a year ago um, and who a year ago finished his regular service. He's an officer in an elite commando unit in some Khanim and paratroopers uh, in Orev. And um, we went up to have dinner with him and his wife. You know, his wife also uh, uh, served in the army. She's an intelligence officer. I'm oh, sorry, she's intelligence. And, and it was awesome. And we had no idea that life was about to completely change. Um, and that was Friday night. And Shabbat, by the end of Shabbat, you know, I didn't really know everything that was going on because I was at the yeshiva and nobody had phones. And, but uh, certainly by the afternoon, everybody understood something terrible was happening. By the next afternoon, our son-in-law, Eliel, whose wife, uh, our eldest, is a doctor. She's an obstetrician psychologist, works at Um, He was drafted. Our son, Yair, uh, was drafted. Um, our um, our daughter-in-law. Yeah, ears. Yeah, ears. The one who you've been having dinner with. The right. Exactly. Exactly. He, you know, left the next afternoon. Um, his wife Tippy 
was called up to the reserves because of her intelligent job, which even if I knew exactly what she does, I wouldn't be able to comment on it, but um, it's a serious job. And she was drafted. She was actually the first of the three of them. She went into the army first, funnily enough. Um, and uh, within another day, three of my nephews, three of our nephews were drafted, uh, um, all three of them from the Tzan Hanim. Then a fourth nephew was drafted. Um, he's in Kfir. And then you started to hear other cousins and relatives. I'm not even talking about the Oraita boys. We have over, we have almost 70 Oraita boys who served in the Israeli army. Um, almost all of them, either in Israel or came back to Israel, um, somewhere between 30 and 40 of them serving in Aza. So by the end of that week, I mean, the list was too long for Misha Berach's. It was, it was crazy. Um, yeah. Look, what, the first thing that happens is you realize that that there are clear demarcation lines, not judgmentally, but just there are different groups of people who are going through very different things. You know, I have a friend who had a, a very apt, uh, you know, observation. He said, when my friends from overseas call me, they ask me how I am. My friends in Israel talk to me. They ask me where my kids are. That was what everybody was going through here. Where are your kids? Right. So, you know, the first thing is we realized that our daughter was four children. Her husband is gone. She's a doctor. She's going to crash. Like there's just no way she can deal with that load. Right. Um, they have a, a new baby who was uh, born uh, uh, you know, in April. She's still not sleeping through the nights. She's still nursing. How do you manage that without your husband? And so Dorit and I basically, I mean, our whole, you know, you, you're almost embarrassed to say it because relative to people fighting in Aza or people, you know, who were in October 7th fighting or the, or the, or the hostage, it doesn't even bear mention. But you're right. I wouldn't say that there's been no focus from your introduction on the human dimension. I think that there are ancillary uh, particulars to this that people certainly outside of Israel aren't, aren't fully aware of. Right. And that immediately happened, you know, so very quickly, my wife, basically, we didn't intend this. She went over for the night. She said, OK, I'm not leaving. I'm going to help you through the night because the baby's sick and you, you can't not sleep in the night and do everything. And it, it just doesn't work. And what basically ended up happening was she moved in with my daughter. My, our, our eldest also lives in Efrat. They're about a seven minute drive from us. So it wasn't such a big deal. She basically moved in, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, when Eliel got out on a break. Uh, she finally had a night at home. It was her first night at home in like six weeks. It was crazy. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's you know exactly my point. In other words, there is a lot of discussion in the international press and you know online about you know the people who experience real horrors. But I think, for example, stories like your daughter, you know, oftentimes get underrepresented. I mean, here you have somebody who's a doctor who has professional responsibilities who's certainly not getting off right of her responsibilities as a doctor. She has four children. Now, and obviously, you know, when her husband goes to Gaza, it's not like he's texting her every night to say goodnight, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know from your experience, how, how often did, did she hear from him? Did she hear from him once a week? Did she hear from him once every two weeks? So that actually, I think that was one of the more, again, you hesitate to talk about these things relative, like my daughter kept saying, I haven't heard from him, but you know what? No news is good news. Right. Like every Israeli knows that the two most difficult words of this conflict are the words hutar lefilsum. Right. Right. The following names have been released for publication, which means that the families know. Yeah. Israel is very good about this. Like right. they don't let it get out to the news as best they can until the families are officially noticed, notified, which itself is a horrendous experience. Right. I have a cousin, I'm sure you know, very close with who was killed in uh, the Second Lebanon War, and I watched what his family went through and my cousins. Um, but, and that's true. At the same time, because you have so many other people that you're close with, you know, your heart still drops. Right. I mean, there's so many names in your head. So, right. so yeah, on the one hand, you know, not knowing is better than knowing. On the other hand, just just not knowing is horrendous. And how you know, I'll you give you an example. Sorry. I'll give you an example. Um, my daughter, Dorit was, was, you know, was over the house and, uh, oh no, I was there. I was downstairs and, uh, my aunt said, you know, I just want to, I'm just going to go take a shower. And I was with the baby and I'll be in charge of all four kids while she's taking a shower. So she went to, 
And uh, she forgot her phone. Her phone was in the kitchen. And I was with the baby. The baby was crying. So I was holding the baby. And the phone rang. Right? And I couldn't get the phone. It was her phone. It wasn't my phone. My phone was in my pocket. This was like, I don't know, maybe the first week, second week. And um, and as she, I guess, was getting out of the shower or something, she hears her phone downstairs. But I'm sitting down there, so she's not going to cut, right? And she missed the call. Within a minute, she had thrown stuff on, she was still wet hair, running down to the kitchen to see who had called on the phone. Because she can't afford to miss phone call. She doesn't want to miss phone call. Right. And it was a, it was actually a number she didn't recognize. And that freaked her out. I'm sure. You know, she might not even remember this now. Is it somebody calling with that kind of call? Is it just a friend? Is it, you know, they're not allowed to take their phones into Aza, obviously. Did he have an opportunity to? So it creates this, this surrealistic stress. Right. You know, I'll give you another example of that. So um, my son took me. In. So this was conversations you never want to have with your kid. So my son is an officer and he's in the elite commando unit. And they're, we don't know when they're going to Aza. This is the first. As it turned out, they spent, oh, I don't remember exactly what it was. It was definitely over two weeks doing serious training. Like, thank God somebody wise said, we're not running in because we're going to show them. We're going we're gonna to do this at a responsible level. We're going to train them. We're going to make sure they're back. And these are really good soldiers. But anyway, so after about two, two and a half weeks, they finally go into Aza. Now, they had their phones taken away most of the time before they went into Aza. So my son took me aside. Um, I think when he went in, they have a an Ishkesher. They have somebody in the army whose you know job it is to collate these types of things, usually from the Shalishut from Manpower. Said you have to give us an Ishkesher, give us one contact person. If something comes up, person is wounded, something happens, we'll call that contact person. So this way you get to think about who you want that contact person to be. So my son said to me, look. I don't want Sippy getting his wife getting a call like that. Uh, and I don't want anybody getting a call like that. I want you to be the contact person. You have a little more experience with these things. I said, fine. He says, that just means you have to be, you know, with your phone. And my wife was very nervous about this because, you know, I teach in yeshiva. I leave the phone in my office. I'm going to teach. Okay. So the first Shabbat, now he's drafted, but I know he's in Rehovot in an area and they're training, right? And I didn't think about it. It was Shabbos. I don't, my, like, I don't carry my phone on Shabbat. So my phone was in my room where it was. And, uh, you know, I don't remember still whether we were over at Mayans or they came over to us. Like, we didn't have a Shabbat on our own for three months to read night. And um, apparently, about an hour before the end of Shabbat, he was trying to reach me. Like, they had, they thought they were going in. They had some emergency. He needed to reach me. He couldn't reach me because, you know, I didn't have my phone. It was Shabbat. So he gave me, he was really upset with me about it. He said, uh, you know, like, you have to be on your phone. Now, this is classic halachic question. Like, am I allowed to carry a phone in a situation like that? Right. And there's actually an interesting halachic discussion. There's a, uh, the Shulchan Aruch talks about what you do, the code of Jewish law. What do you do if a woman is blind and she's in childbirth? Which basically means she's a chola, she basakana. There is risk to her, just to her life. Um, and she wants you to turn the light on. She wants you to light a candle on Shabbat. Can you do it? Right. So the Shulchan Aruch says, absolutely, because her mental the, the, her mental well-being, the fact that she knows that you can see, contributes to her being calmer, and that's life-saving. Right. And therefore, Rav Rami Nahar, who was really one of the first to publish a pocketbook of Dinei Tzavah Muhammad, the Halachot in the army, Paskin ruled on that, basically, that a soldier... Um, can do all sorts of things. He can, he can, you know, uh, write on a one-time pad. That that means, you know, the, the 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 names and serial numbers of the men in his, let's say, tank before he goes out on patrol on Shabbat, because that contributes to their mental well-being, knowing that somebody knows they're there. And based on that, certain poskim today said that in situations such as mine, you can you can have carry the phone on Shabbat. So all of a sudden, I'm carrying a phone on Shabbat. I don't do that. Right, like in the army, I did that. I never did that as a civilian before. Right, and then you go to show, and I, I, I really felt like his mental well, like he needed to know that I had the phone on me. It took me two months to convince him. I didn't think that was so, but for two months, I carried my phone on Shabbat. Now you go to show, or you're in the middle of a shear, 
or I'm in a right there for Shabbat. Right. And I've got the phone in my, do I silence it? Right. What if it rings? Do I take it out? It's probably not him because he doesn't have a phone, like, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, very complicated. It's so interesting because, you know, your experience here is sort of like two-sided. On the one hand, you're a father of a commander, uh, somebody who obviously is under extraordinary stress preparing for battle, but you're also a former officer. And, um, you know, when you were in the army, so obviously cell phones were not nearly as technologically advanced as they are today, right? I assume that when you were in Lebanon, there was no possibility of you texting anybody. It just wasn't a live option. So I'm curious sort of from that angle as somebody who's sort of seen both sides, Right. Do, do you think that the issue of being able to be accessible and the extent to which we can make phone calls so easily sort of makes it easier or in a certain sense more difficult than the soldier right um, on the front lines? I actually saw an amazing thing on social media where someone was posted a thing of a woman that uh, apparently when, you know, Chas Shalom, there's someone who is killed in battle. So they send somebody to someone's house and they knock on the door. So it was an older woman who was living alone, and she posted a sign in Hebrew that said, under no circumstances should anybody knock on my door unless it's life-threatening. Because for her, every time someone knocked on her door, right, there was this immediate terror, right? So I'm curious, you know, from, from that angle, do you get a sense that the technology here made it better or in a certain sense make it worse? From your experience, what was life like when you were in Lebanon knowing that you didn't have any way to sort of, you know, act, call your dad even if you wanted to? Look, it's a double-edged sword. I'll tell you both sides of the story. Um, first of all, I remember when my grandmother passed away. Um, I was at the end of a particularly difficult period of training. I was in uh, whatever, tank school in the field. It was like three months of you're just out in the field all night and all day in the mud. It's just horrible. And I, we're just finishing this up. And uh, I... I um, I get a call. One of the commanders says the company commander wants to see you. Now I'm not even a sergeant yet. I didn't even know that I was going to go to commander's course. And the company commander, like this is not your sergeant. It's not even your platoon commander who's his commander and officer. It's the company commander who's his officer. He's like God. And he wants to see you in his office. This is not something you look forward to, right? They're not. And I get there and he's there and my own commander is there. And the Ktsinat Tash, the, there's a, an officer who's responsible for root for, you know, these types of things, you know, dealing with soldiers' issues, psychological issues. Um, they had found out that they'd gotten a call from the consulate through my parents that somehow gotten to them that my grandmother had passed. I was very close to my grandmother. And so they wanted me to know. So, you know, I'm like sitting there kind of crying in the office, really hard time. And they said that uh, two things. They said that they had arranged that if I wanted to, I could go back to the States for a week to be there for the funeral, the shiva, whatever it would need be. Um, and you have to understand, like, you're in the middle of Gehenna. I mean, you're, you're like, you're covered in grease and, and, and just, I'm going to go back to America if they're going to let me go to America for a week. Like, even without that, I want to see my parents and I want to see my grandmother and whatever. But then they said, but you should know that we just completed the list of who's going to be invited to commander's course. And we decided you're going to be invited to commander's course. Now, nobody else knows this yet. But we want you to understand that if you go back for a week now, you're going to lose that opportunity because you finished this course. Commander's course starts next week. You have to go. If you don't go, then, you know, you won't get the commander's course. So I really struggled with this. And I actually made a mental decision that I was going to I was going to go back. Like, keep it up. My, 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 my grandmother. Then they said that they'd arranged a phone call for me and that I was going to get a three minute phone call. The army would sponsor a three because it's a lot expensive, you know, to call the states in those days so i had three minutes three minute phone call and they took me to an office and they said so my father has just found out his mother passed away my, my grandfather passed away years earlier i have to talk to my parents about whether i'm going to stay in israel and go to the commander's course or whether i'm going to go back to the shiva in addition to giving the common parents i had three minutes that was what i had and and when we got on the phone so they didn't know any of this and i had to tell them this and my father's reaction right away is i don't want you to come home I don't think you should give that up. I want you to go to commander's course. I'm just only like, that's what he, and that's what I did. And I really struggled with it, which obviously had an impact on my future. The second um, example of this, when much later, uh, I forget when it was, I think I was already an officer, but I was in Lebanon. And my mother said to me, you know, now I'm, I'm an officer or I'm serving in Lebanon, or maybe it was earlier when I was in Lebanon, I don't remember. And um, uh, my parents came for the summer. They, there was no way that they were going to stay in America 
you know, while there were two of us, my 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 older brother also, he was in uh, paratroopers, and that particular summer he was in, I think he was in Beirut, or maybe I'm mixing the timeline up. Anyway, so my mother said to me, "I want you to tell me everything that's going on. It it'll be easier for me if I know what's going on. Tell me what's going on, right?" So we were sitting Shabbos afternoon. I'd gotten after Shabbat. And I told them, I told them what I'm going through. I told them, you know, the grenade that missed me. I told them, you know, a whole bunch of stories, you know, being shot at and a sniper hit somebody next to me, all these kinds of stories. And um, while I'm doing it, I'm just, I'm, I'm, maybe I shouldn't be telling you this, but she really wants, she said, really appreciate giving me a hug, whatever. I'm going to dive for you, whatever. And then I found out later how difficult that was for her. And I made a mental decision. I'm just not going to do that again. I, I'm just like, it's too difficult for her. Why would I do that? Right. But she wants me to tell her something. So I decided to lie. I lied. Right. I told her we were moved. I told her we're in a safe area. Nothing's going on. Right. Now, I could do that because we had no cell phones. Right. That, that would not have worked if we had cell right. phones. And also, there was no no sort of media presence to the extent to which there is today that she would find out things through other media. Right. She'd check. Then, even if she's not active on social media, you know, somebody will right. text her. Something will be going on. Yeah. All the information is everywhere. That's so, actually a really interesting sort of framing of it because you mentioned, you know, grandparents and relatives. You also mentioned before um, your son-in-law, Eliel, who's in Aza, and you have your daughter who's, you know, managing four little kids and also, you know, managing very intense uh, shifts as a doctor. So well, just to, just to full disclosure, she was on, this is a great example of an ancillary price. She was on She, the baby was born. She had maternity leave. Right. She was supposed to go back to work full time I think it was like October 8th. It was either that Sunday or a week later. I think it was a week right. later. Right. And um, so she, she she said, I just can't. I, I, even right. with my, you know, even with you guys helping, if he's not here, I, I you know, right. people don't understand what it means to, to be a resident. If yeah. you don't have a husband that's supportive, I don't know how people do it. Right. For um, sure. So she pushed off going back. Um, and. And in fact, only recently she went back to turn me out and she's now working. Right. And, uh, you know, in I think two weeks, she's going back to full-time work there. Right. Um, it wasn't, um, that was a part of the puzzle. Right. The bigger part of the puzzle was just on a personal level, you know, I think what's scary for wives, uh, family is the unknown. Right. You know, I thought about this because I was talking to my wife about it. I never, I never was really, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a hard time during the, 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 the second Lebanon war. I mean, I have to think it's all one Lebanon war, but they call it the second Lebanon war. That was actually the first serious conflict that I wasn't part of. I had, uh, I was still in the reserves, but my unit didn't get called up. They didn't need me. And so I got to see what it's like to be in the, in the, what do they call it? The rear com command, the ORF. What is the ORF in English? Um, the uh, the home front, the home front, right? It's not easy. Obviously, right. it's not as difficult as being in Lebanon, but it's not easy. And um, it was very difficult for me because I recognized all these names, and to hear those names again and realize we're back where we were was difficult. Right. Um. But but on the other hand, I didn't have anybody who was struggling in the same way. I didn't. Uh, there were people I knew who were in Lebanon, but they weren't. It happened to be. Remember that Lebanon, you know, in the second Lebanon war, I think they drafted thirty thousand people. Right. Right. It, you know, that that's a tenth of what they drafted now, less than a tenth. Right. Here, you knew so many people. Right. So that was the first difference. The second difference was, um, you know, not having your phones. Um, like I said before, was a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, when they got out. They could reach out to you right. and you could talk to them. And I'm sure you'll bring that up. Like, what's that right. like when somebody gets out and has to go back in? Right. Um, you know, they take away their phones. They don't just take away their phones and then go to Aza. They take away their phones once they're anywhere near the staging grounds for reasons that are obvious. Right. Um, and just that unknown is right. incredibly difficult. And what I realized was, you know, like I had this discussion with my wife. I never really thought about what it was like for you. Like when I was in the regular army, I wasn't married. My parents were in Chutzlars. They were in America. It was a big party. You know, there was a particular period of time where I was absolutely sure I was going to die. There was so many people I got hurt or killed or whatever. Uh, my brother had the same experience. 
But I wasn't, it didn't freak, like, okay, it's a good way to go. You know, you're 19, 20, it's a big adventure. Once you get married and you have children, you have a lot more to lose, or at least you think you have a lot more to lose. And you start to think about the people that are behind, but not so much. So, for example, when I was in the reserves, when I was doing intifada duty, I had learned already the lesson from my mother. I did not tell my wife what was going on. She had Mm -hmm. no idea where we were, what we were doing. She might know that we were in Ramallah. But, you know, we're just doing patrols. We live in Efrat. We live in Gushetion. You know, up until they built the tunnel road, we had to drive through Beit Lechem and Dahisha. So my wife is a veteran of those days. She's not freaked out by these things. It wasn't a big deal, right? She didn't know. You know, if I was in a particular situation where I was going into terrorist houses and we got shot at, I didn't come home and tell my wife that. Why would I make her worry every time I go to Milwaukee? In right. fact, when I used to get out of the reserves, you know, on the last day, I learned. You don't tell your wife you're going to get home at five or six. You tell her it's like crazy. I'll probably get home one in the morning. Don't wait up for me. If you get home at five or six, you tell her you got home earlier than you thought. And it's great. And if you right. don't, she doesn't worry. Right. So the, the worry factor was there. Here, she, my daughter, actually knows. She knows he's going into Aza. She knows that he's with an elite unit. So she knows he's not going to be, you know, counting, you know, bullets in the back. Um, they pretty much let people know on the news. I mean, she knew she knew the number of his khativa. My, my wife never knew my khati, my brigade number. Yeah. She knew he was in Chamesh Chamesh Echad, you know. It turned out that my son and my son-in-law are in the same brigade. Now, thank right. God they're not in the same company. Right. They were in the same area. Right. You know, that, that can make you nervous. How, how does he how loses does, his uh, phone? Pardon? Sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. So they take away his phone, and now she has no way of knowing. So right. I realized what's really scary here is there's no end date. Right. You can deal with this. My wife always knew that I'm coming back 30 days later. Like the period of time where I didn't know when I was finishing because we were at war in Lebanon, I didn't have people worried about that issue. Right. So, so what my fear was that every time my daughter walks into the kitchen and has to do something, you know, they're like all couples. Like in my house, my wife and I divide responsibilities, right? So like, you know, if my wife is cooking dinner, she's not thinking how long can I do this because that's what she always does. Right. But 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 I take out the garbage. So every time my wife would go to take out the garbage, she would say, could I end up doing this forever? Right. So we didn't want our daughter to have to go through that multiple times a day. And I watched her lose it a few times. Like it's, wow. it's, it's painful. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. So we just decided we're going to be so there that when that question comes up, she'll be able to say to herself, you know what? This is tough and it's scary. But I my parents got my back. Right. What do people do who don't have parents like that? Right. Yeah. Like I went every morning for, I don't know, three months, three and a half months, only like a week ago, it started to calm down. And I, I took all four kids, you know, you take one, you help them get dressed, then you take the other one, then you pick up the baby, you take them to town, then you go to work and you get used to it. It's not a big deal to take four kids to school, you know, even if they're little. Right. But uh, how do people manage this if they're single moms? Right. If they're, if they're you know, that their husband is, they're married, their husband, and they don't have anybody to back them up. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you mentioned before is I'm just getting back to the metaphor that your your wife described to me of Miguyesa Kasafta, right? So you're obviously watching your grandchildren, you know, helping your your daughter who's just you know coming out of labor, a new child, not not that long ago. So your your oldest grandchild is is not that young, right? It's not like he's uh, two years old. Um, he knows that his father's in Gaza. He knows his father's in the army. I assume when he goes to Ghana, you know, people. Are, I mean, obviously they're still little kids, but still the language of war is something they're familiar with. So how did you navigate that? I mean, that's, again, another piece of, of this discussion that I think is oftentimes, you know, I understand why it doesn't get as much press, so to speak, as, you know, the, the stories that really, you know, are the ones that are make their ways to the, the headlines. But I mean, imagine here you have a little kid, you know, how old is he? Eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old. He goes to sleep for a month and his father is not there and his grandfather's there. And, you know, how did you as a grandfather, what, what, what was the dialogue like? You know, what did you guys talk about? Well, I think there are two, two or three variables in this topic. First of all, obviously different kids are different. Um, so, for example, our oldest, who's going to turn ten in March, is you know he's just very old for his age, very mature for his age. He's, you know, he speaks three languages. He's he's really very very bright. So on the one hand, he's very discerning. On the other hand, he's very intuitive and understands, you know, that this isn't the time to lose it type of thing. So. I'll give you one example. I, I decided the first time I was taking uh, our youngest granddaughter, which is not our, our youngest grandchild, but 
she's uh, four and she goes to Gan. And I figured out that trying to take all three or four of them, you know, out of the door at the same time is much harder. Her gun is like a five minute walk from the house. So I said, you know what? She's always ready first. I'm going to take her. And that way I'll have five minutes of a long time with her when I walk her to gun. Then I'm going to come back. Then I'm going to pick up the two older ones. Then I'm going to come back and get the baby. That was just easy. And so little by little, my daughter's morning gets easier. And if my wife was there, which she usually was also. So after the first day, I realized like she didn't want me to go. You know, I, I'm not sure what the background to that was. Did she not want me to go because Abba isn't, isn't coming back? When are you coming back? So the next day I did what most parents know how to do well, which is educational bribery. And I showed up with treats, right? And it got to be a habit. And I had an interesting discussion with my daughter. Like this is one of those tiny minor ancillary impacts of the war. Every morning I took them and every morning I got, I gave them a treat. Like when you, you don't get the treats till you come out the door and, you know, one granddaughter gets it when she gets to school. The other one likes it on the way to school, whatever. I learned what treats they like. Anyway, one morning, you know, one night, and I would go over at night and I'd be with them at night and tell them stories, put them to bed. And I'm sitting with uh, with Ayala, who's five or six now, first grade. And she's sort of the, you know, the second. And uh, and I said to her, you know, what's your favorite treat? Because I'm trying to figure out like, what treats they like. She looks at me and goes, Abba. How do you answer that? Right. And her eyes are starting to tear. And they say to you, like, when is Abba coming home? Matai Abba Choser, right? You know, why do we have to have a war? So Amitai is, is there and he's listening to this. He says, what do you mean? He says, war is great. So I'm looking at like, what? He says, listen, you know, the first few weeks, there was not enough manpower in the schools. So first they had no school and then they had, you know, school till 12 or something, and then, and then the other group took from 12 to 3, like they split it up. So he says, there's less school. Sabi and Safti are here all the time. We get treats every morning, and we get to do a lot more watching, because like they can't stand up, so they right. right. watch a little more than the... Right. He said, the only thing better is that Abba doesn't need it. War is great! <laughs> <laughs> now, whether he really believes that, or he was just being very clever with his sister, I don't know. Right. So right. different kids react differently, that's first. Right. Um, second of all, uh, I think that there are certain patterns of behavior that change. You know, um, I was talking to Eliel about this when he got out on a visit. You know, you, you create a new paradigm and a new sort of mode of behavior, and then all of a sudden he comes back. So, like, he got out, I think it was after four or five weeks, he got out for, like, a day and a half. So, obviously, I'm not going to go. Like, obviously, Dori came back home, and I wasn't going over the next morning, and I sent them a text. You know, if you want me to, I'll come and take them and then you can have some time. But if you obviously he wanted to take his kids to gun. So they have like 36 hours. But like Mayan has gotten into this routine and he's not part of the routine. Now he comes back for 24 hours and he feels like a guest in his own home. Also, wow. he's used to being at home. I mean, he's the CEO of a company. He's very busy. as well. He's no busy. He made a decision when he comes home. He's not dealing with work. He's with his family. Right. He's like kind of hanging around the house all day. Right. And he starts looking for all the things that he can do to help. Like all these little details that are part of this equation that nobody really thinks about. Right. So, yeah, it was, look, we don't really know, you know, in Bezrat Hashem, we're blessed and we should continue to be blessed. Uh, we don't really know the full impact of this. I, I think it's going to take a long time. They yeah. have friends, you know, whose who's, who's relatives or parents or whatever who were killed. Right. They talk about it in school, right. you know, that the realities are different now. Right. Um, it, it's a tough question, by the way. They have an unknown because both Yair and Eliel got out. They pulled their uh, brigade out and they were told that you'll have a few weeks at home. They weren't told you're done. Right. And then they were told we might go back in, go up north. Nobody knows what's coming. Is there a war in the north? Right. Is there? So it's kind of this reality. Like my son decided, you know what? He was supposed to do his psychometry. He was supposed to take a course to study for this. Uh, I don't know what that is in English, but it's a matric yeah, exam that you right, take to exactly. get into university. Right. And, um, you know, obviously the course got canceled and he wasn't there. So now they have a new course starting. If he doesn't take this course, he's going to have to push off the university for a whole year. So he decided, I'm going to take this course. And, you know, we'll have to see what happens. He, does, he has right. no idea if he's going to get to finish the course, if he's going to go right. to university. He doesn't know where he's going to school. Right, right. You know. What would you say that, um, I mean, again, I think one of the, you know, really, I think one of the many reasons why you're like a really unique person to talk about this is because, again, you, you sort of wear two hats, right? You're not only a grandfather or a father, but you're also somebody who's a former soldier. Um, would you say that given your experience, um, you know, as a soldier, 
it makes it more difficult for you, you know, to sort of know exactly what goes on, you know, as a, you know, as a combat soldier, or would you say in a certain sense, you no, know, it's the opposite that, you know, because you know what it's like, you know, you understand sort of the mental toughness, you understand the ability to endure, you know, I, I was never in the army, you know, I only, I'm only, I'm only able to get a sense of what goes on, you know, in, in, uh, in Gaza from what I see like on social media or, you know, on the internet, but, you know, you're, you're somebody who's experienced a lot of time in very intense combat. So if you had to contrast that, for example, say your experience versus, let's say, for example, your wife's experience or maybe your parents' experience, you know, would you say that it makes it easier for you? In a certain sense, it makes it harder for you. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think it's a double-edged sword. For some reason, it just happens to be that these last three months, um, both Eliel and my son were stationed. They were fighting in areas that I know. Um, they were in Jabalia, they were in Beit Lahia, they were in, in areas in Sajaya in northern Aza. And I spent time there. I spent time there in Sadir, I spent some time there in Miluim. Um, you know, there were a couple of times I saw pictures and I'm like, what happened to that clock there? Oh, the clock there isn't there anymore. Like I so on the one hand, it was a little easier for me. I, I also um, you know, there's a certain language that you speak uh when you've been through these things. You have this common language common understanding with your kids that anyone who hasn't done the army just doesn't have it's not it's just like any other profession right if you're a doctor and your daughter's a doctor you're you know i listen my father-in-law was a doctor is a doctor and he talks to my daughter about things that i can't follow so on the one hand it makes it easier it's also significantly different in terms of now like i you know my son and i, I had a pretty intense conversation about some of his experiences and my wife was pushing me, like, talk to him because he needs to get this stuff out. And obviously he needs to talk to somebody who's been through it. Um, on the other hand, you know, when I know what they're doing, I understand what the risks are. Um, I suspect, you know, fear is about the unknown. What makes us afraid most of all is that we don't know. If you could really know, you would never be afraid. Right. That's why anybody who has true emunah and totally knows that Hashem runs the world has no fear. I don't know if human beings are capable of reaching that level, but to the degree that you can get there, it definitely helps. Mm -hmm. So I think knowing more is helpful. That's how I felt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the only aspect of this that was a little difficult is you just don't know. You don't know when they're getting home. You don't know what they're going through. Um, you know, I, I cannot even imagine as an example. You know, I have a, a, a close friend who... Zach Baumel, who was missing in action for many, many years. His body was finally returned a few years ago. Um, he's buried in Herzl. I've been a number of times. I have a close friend whose son is buried literally a row away from his grave. So whenever I go to one, I go to the other. So I've been a number of times. And I got close to his parents over the years. Father Yona passed away a number of years ago. His mother is still alive. And I followed this journey through their eyes. And it's just insurmountable suffering it, it's it's beyond my comprehension and understanding a little bit that we understand about what these hostages are going through they're they're 13 now 13 girls uh most of them soldiers 18 19 year old beautiful young girls who you know were serving in the israeli army intelligence units that's 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 was that observers or whatever they were watching the borders and overnight they're living a nightmare and we have no idea where they are, what they're doing to them, when they're coming home. I cannot begin to imagine. Like there's so many pieces of tefillah that give me pause. But any Jew today who davens and says the words matira surim and doesn't pause to think about this, I don't know, it's just missing something. And um, so on that level, I think it's much more difficult for them because they don't know. Right. Would you yeah. say that um, just in your own experience, again, like you mentioned before, let's say your son, your ear coming out or your son-in-law, Eliel, coming out and not knowing if they're going to come back. You mentioned your son, your ear trying to, you know, re-engage a, a psychometric course, right? And, and I think that's actually a really interesting framing, right? Because oftentimes, you know, when soldiers get out, right, of battle, it's not like they have a two-month vacation to recalibrate. It's not like they have two weeks off to sort of like, you know, reflect and, you know, process. Oftentimes, you have to go back, right back 
to real life. From your experience as a soldier, what, what was that like? I mean, what's it like for somebody to come out of Gaza, being Gaza for six weeks, and all of a sudden to go right back into a, a psychometric course? I mean, when you, when you were that age, I assume you also had similar experiences. You know, you got out and went to your parents' house or you went somewhere else. You know, what was that like? Was it easy to transition back and forth or did it require a lot of time to sort of process, re-engage, and only then to really appreciate that you can come out of it? Very great story. First of all, I think it's very different on this question when you're in the regular army and when you're in the reserves. Uh, when you're in the regular army, you know, part of you feels you're growing and you're, but most of you, at least for me, most of you just wants to be done. You know, it was probably one of the, if not the most difficult decision I ever have to, had to made to, to go to officer's course and particularly to go back because I understood it would mean a lot more time in the army. I really wasn't cut out to be in the army. I didn't want to be in the army. I felt it was something that we need to do for army as well. And I, I had this opportunity. They wanted to send me on to, you know, higher courses and battalion command or whatever. And I just decided there were other things I wanted to do. And, and I, I couldn't wait to get out once I knew I was leaving. And you think you're finished because, you know, it's a long time to be in the Army, four and a half, five, whatever it is, years. And the truth is you're just getting started. You just don't realize that. Um, on certain levels, the reserves is much more difficult. Um, I didn't even, well, it's a longer story, but I, I should have, could have finished the reserves when I was 40. I stayed in the reserves till I was like, I think, 52, 53, um, because it was just difficult to, to find someone to take my place and felt I was contributing. And at a certain point, I realized it was time to pass the baton. Um, so when you're in Sadir, when you're in the regular army, yeah, there is a difficult transition, but you go through it to some degree when you get out of the army for the weekend. And when you're in Lebanon, it's much more difficult, but it's not a big deal. I'll just give you one example. There was a summer when my brother, who started the army before me and finished before me, we were both in Lebanon for like, I don't know, six months, whatever it was, a year. And we both got out at the same time, which was rare. Like I would be out, he was in, he was out, I was in. So this Shabbat, we were both out. And I was like really excited we're going to spend Shabbat together. My parents had gotten an apartment. And we're walking down King George Street towards the corner of King George and Yafo, right? And we had both just gotten down from Lebanon. Like, you know, we were just in our, like, once you've been in the army for, like, if you've just drafted, there's that, you know, sort of Saturday night walk or Friday, you know, you, you're in your uniform, you walk through town, you feel like a king. That lasts one time. After that, you just can't wait to get out of your uniform. So we were already at that stage. So we're walking down in our, and some car backfired. And the two of us, without thinking, hit the dirt. Like we literally threw ourselves on the ground, did a Gilgul Krav a roll, right? And then, you know, sort of reaching for the guns we didn't have on us. And there were people walking by and they understood exactly that. They all started laughing. Like it was hysterical. Like these two guys were obviously, and then somebody came over us to call a cover, whatever. So you don't really leave it. When you're in reserves, what's hard is making that mental switch when you get back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, you get used to it. Right. Uh, I, I, I also think there's a difference from being in the reserves, being in, you know, some of the reserve duty that you do is like, it's just difficult, but it's not dangerous. Like you're in maneuvers, you're practicing tank maneuvers. So you're covered in pudra and you're miserable and you haven't showered and you, I don't think civilians understand very often just how much, like whenever I see somebody who's sitting learning Torah saying like, okay, you know, we serve army soil, you serve army soil, it's hard to learn Torah. I have to think that's true. It's very hard to learn Torah all day. You cannot compare learning Torah to, 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 to serving the army. There's just two different levels of difficulty, in my opinion, having done both. Right. But um, yeah, I think it's very difficult. And I think that when people go through this type of warfare, um, you know, the army is actually being smart about this. Uh, both of them got out. They were told they were getting out of Aza. And then um, they had a week of, of three or four days of army psychologists, uh, you know, brainstorming, strategic. And then they had a week where they said to them, you're still technically on reserve duty. Uh, you're not going to be released until Thursday, but you're off. Mm -hmm. They gave them a week where they were technically still in the army. So people who really would have to go back to work otherwise didn't. And that was very clever. They, they, they forced them to take this, this buffer, which I think was very clever. But yeah, it's difficult. Maybe if we could end by sort of shifting a little bit, um, in addition to being a Saba and a former commander, you're also a Rav, Rosh Hashiva. So I'm curious if we could just talk for a few minutes about your experience um, personally, um, being a soldier in terms of, the religious implications of feeling like you're really on a type of shlichut. I mean, most of the wars I assume that you were a part of were, were difficult wars, wars that were essential for, you know, Israel's survival. And currently the current war is another example of that. 
So from a religious perspective, you know, obviously, you know, it's challenging to daven, and obviously it's challenging to, you know, engage ritually to do a TLC daim, you know, in places where you don't have access to water. Okay, but beyond sort of the specifics, what was your experience like as a religious soldier feeling like you are in the first Jewish army uh, in thousands of years, right? This is an army that, you know, Jews for thousands of years could never have imagined being a part of, and you have the extraordinary privilege of being a part of it. You know, I think one of the amazing things about October 7th is that, you know, you had all these people coming back to Israel to serve. You know, you had 300,000 additional Israelis coming back from overseas to serve. And there's a collective sense of shlichut. If you add to that, the religious sense that, you know, you're, you're, you're really part of a redemptive process, something transformative is going on there, right? Did you feel that? I mean, obviously day in and day out, there's a lot of challenges, but did you feel like religiously inspired when you were going through that? Look, one of the things that, um, one of the things that, uh, that I decided to make sure of, you know, especially when I went to be an officer, I had a chavruta, a study partner who tried to convince me not to go, you know, it isn't like today. Uh, in those days, there were very few guys with kippot on their heads who went to become officers. Uh, Hesder was not on board with this at all. It was a difficult decision. Uh, Rav Buchenstein actually okayed my going, but it was not a simple thing. Um, so I decided, perhaps to prove that Chavruta wrong, that there were certain things I was going to, they were going to be Yahari Valiyab, uh, that no matter what happened, I wasn't going to give up on them. One of them was davening and wearing tefillin. And I decided that every day when I davened, no matter how difficult it was, um, that I would find one meaningful moment when I die. You have to understand what that what what the difficulty is. Imagine you're in Lebanon, you're in a tank. It, the steel of the tank is so cold that if you put your hand on it, the hand will stick to it. It'll rip your skin off, right? So you're wearing, you know, got you're wearing gatkis, you're wearing a sarbal, which is this uh, flame retardant uh, tank overall. On top of that, you're probably wearing a sweater, and on top of that, you're wearing your hermonit, your one piece uh, parka. If you want to put your tefillin on, you got to unzip the parka. You know, you're in a tank turret or on top of an armored personnel carrier. You got to unzip the parka. You got to uh, take off your sweater. You got to undo your you pull up your gakas, get your hand out so you can put your tefillin around. But you can't stay that way. Then you got to put it all back on. And when you finish diving, you have to do it all over again. The the yates are hard, the, the the desire to just say let it go like I'm fighting. I have an excuse. So because I think. I found a moment in davening every day that would be meaningful to me. It almost, I didn't intend it this way, forced me to think about these things. And I'll give you a great example. I had a custom um, to say tefillah taderech every time we went out on patrol. And this is a halakhali debatable topic, because sometimes you go on a patrol, you're not leaving a city. Like when you're in Beirut, you're not leaving cities. So there's a debate whether you say tefillah taderech, you're not leaving the city. I said, I'm in a Jeep or a tank or an armed person. I don't care. I'm going to say Tfil Sadar. I'll find out later what I should have done, right? And then I realized, like, you can't just, you know, you can't wait till you're, you know, Arba Milim or whatever it is, like, right. the distance. Um, and you, you can't even do it when you're leaving the base because then you, you know, that's one of the places where you're most likely to get attacked. You have to have your wits about it. You can't be safe Tfil Sadar. And if you're going to say the prayer for a safe journey, you know, you want to close your eyes, have a moment. So I started, I decided to start saying it right before we left the base. Like the last thing I would do, my unit knew, you know, before I gave the order or, and one, it's a longer story, but uh, one time uh, I was leading a mission of, um, which basically the entire battalion was depending on me navigating our company in the mountains in Lebanon to a particular place where, where our company would sort of look out over the entrance to a village where the rest of the battalion was going in to clean up terrorists and whatever. And um, uh, I was in the middle of saying Tzvil Zadarach, right? You know, with a lot of kavana, because it was actually terrifying. I was really nervous about it. Um, I was actually less nervous about the fear of getting killed than I was about getting lost and getting the whole unit lost. But anyway, um, and the battalion commander radioed in, in the middle. And, uh, you know, eventually I got the mic because I was in the middle of Tzvil Zadarach. And uh, he says to me, um, I, I, you know, the, what happened was that the loader um, had the mic. And the battalion commander says, uh, like, here is uh, two, you know, this is the commander. And uh, the, the tank crew members love to play with the mic. So he was holding the mic and he said, uh, you know, this is the loader. And the battalion commander, who is the god of the company commander, so he doesn't want to, uh, he, doesn't want to he says, I just want to talk to Kod Kod. And uh, when I get on the mic, he says, uh, are you saying Tfilat Aderech? 
because the loader said, he's talking to the commander-in-chief, right? I had no idea how he knew that I did that. But uh, I said, yes. So he made me wait. He put the entire battalion on the battalion frequency. And then he asked me to continue. And it took me a minute to understand. He wanted me to say Tefillat HaDerech. So I said Tefillat HaDerech before we went on a dangerous mission in Lebanon for an entire battalion over the radio frequency. Wow. And after that, every single tank answered Amen. Wow. There are moments where you so feel the sense of, you know, what a responsibility, what a, what, you know, despite everything, we're and it's terrible. What happened on October 7th is horrendous. And, and, and I hope we catch and, and do what needs to be done with every last one of them, every Hamas terrorist, without anger, just because justice needs to be done. But, um, you know, somebody that I'm close with, who is a Holocaust survivor, said people are comparing this to the Holocaust. It wasn't even one afternoon of the Holocaust. Like, what a blessing that we live in a time when, when we can be part of this. So, right. yeah, I think that uh, I think every Jew everywhere has to struggle with this question. It's not for us to judge whether you should be here or there. The Lubavitcher Rebbe of Soloveitchik of Moshe Feinstein did not come back to Israel. So there must be a legitimate reason to stay in America. But you have to ask yourself a question, like the greatest experiment, the greatest social experiment in the last 2,000 years is taking place. And do you want to be a part of this or do you want to be an observer? Everybody has to struggle with this question. Everybody, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast and sharing your insights. This was a really you know, inspiring, uplifting, and, and it's always a uh, very engaging uh, dialogue. So thank you so much and looking forward to having you again on the Tarakim podcast. Amen. Thanks for having me, David. I love talking to you. Shem should bless us all, Bezrat Hashem, soon, that this war comes to a close with good results, that the hostages are brought home, that the sick heal, that the families are comforted, and the soldiers come home safe. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.